So, hey, this is Gary Portnoy here, and you are watching Picking It Out with Andrew Pope. Well, it's another podcast. It's just called Picking It Out. It's another podcast, y'all. Called Picking It Out. Got the one and only Gary Portnoy in the house. Everybody knows his name. Yeah, and we're going to be picking it out. And I miss that note, but that's okay because we're picking it out and we don't edit very much. Live TV. That's right. Hey y'all! Hey. So see now you see what I mean. I have to like reach over here. I got you. Yep. That's kind of got to find a got to find a better way of doing that. But that's the only only thing I got going now. <laughs> okay, there's some more. Got it. Well, hey y'all. My name is Andrew Pope, and we're picking it out again this week. Appreciate y'all tuning in each and every week. Um, I'm real excited today because uh, talking to a guy that. I've kind of admired in the background for a long time. I guess a lot of people know this guy or know of him, uh, but they really don't know about him. And uh, I wanted to have him on the show so he can, you know, talk about his life, talk about some accomplishments and uh, just talk about life in general and whatever else comes up just like we do here on picking it out so uh he wrote one of my favorite tv theme songs of all time okay there's my cat wanting to say hi again gracie hush <laughs> uh where everybody knows your name uh it's cheers theme song and performed it um and uh we're couldn't be more happy to have mr gary portnoy how you doing? Doing good, Andrew. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. Uh, you can probably tell I'm kind of sweaty. Uh, that's because my wife had a had a low beam light out on her uh, on her car, and I thought I'd just go out there and kind of pop it in and out, change it, and I damn near had to take the bumper off. What was it on her car? A headlight bulb. Oh, a light. Yeah. You would think, you know, simple days just kind of pop out, replace, and you're good. I wouldn't. <laughs> uh, not on these cars these days. So after doing all this, okay, I'm already sweating and everything. Then I look it up on YouTube, and all you have to do is take these two screws out in the oh, wheel shit. well and reach through there <laughs> and do it. <laughs> That's what I ended up doing. But anyway, uh, how's things in New York? Well, I imagine about as crazy as everywhere else. It's a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty crazy time in the world. Yeah, it is. Not not, not crazy good. No. It's crazy, you know, like just dangling and hoping you hold on <laughs> to the wire and right. You know, it's crazy. I, I just, you know, my lifetime. This is just madness on every level. 
So agreed. It's you just you know you do the best you can, and you try and keep your friends, which has turned out to not always be so easy <laughs> right. these days, right? Yeah, and uh, you know that's that's what it is. But okay, up here in, <laughs> in the uh, the woods, actually, I'm in the woods outside New York City, so. I was raised in the woods. Yeah, I'm in the country. I have a feeling this is not quite as woodsy as where you were raised, but it's woodsy for me. Yeah. Are are you from New York originally? Yes, I was born in Brooklyn, borough of uh, New York City, and then we did what everybody did. We moved to Long Island, and then I moved to Manhattan try and be in the music business and then i moved up here 30 miles north of manhattan so but always in the same you know yeah part of, always in the same part of the world yeah, yeah. how that music business thing work out <laughs> well you know um it was interesting um if it wasn't for one particular day, my answer would be, you know, if I hadn't gotten up one particular day and written one particular song, my answer might be really, really different. Because, you know, it was uh, pretty ugly business. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of really, really talented people don't wind up with enough to show for putting themselves through that. But so I guess it worked out good, but you know, for about seven or eight years, um, ugh, it was pretty, you know, just a lot of, um, some good people, a lot of unsavory people, a lot of, uh, disappointments over and over and over again. A lot of things that seem like it's about to happen and it doesn't, you know, like, like life, you know? So, um, but I just uh, went after, you know, I dropped out of school and I just, you know, I just went for it and I got pretty lucky early on in the sense that I could feel that, that I had, you know, there was some interest at every point along the way, mixed in with all the rejection and the the horror, I always felt there was a line between me and, and getting to where I was going. Otherwise, I would have quit. So, it's an interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting business, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was 17 when I went after it, when I, and I'm glad I was that young. And it, you know, it took me eight years to have the kind of success that people consider successful. Right. You know, I mean, I had songs cut, I had record deal, but it, you know, it's sort of like if the person on the street doesn't know you're not successful. Yeah. And that's not true. No. You know, that is not true. But there's a, a measuring stick. But um, I just, uh, I made some demos 
in between when I graduated high school and I just went to New York City and I had this billboard magazine list and I didn't know the difference between an agent, a manager, a producer, a publisher. And I just went to every single address that I went to and got every door slammed in my face except for one. This guy invited me and my friend up. And it was like, you know, the door to the kingdom of, you know, he invited us up and he was a hit songwriter. And um, he listened to our tapes and he said to my friend, you're not a songwriter. And he turned to me and he said, you're a songwriter. So that was it, you know, that was it. From that moment on, I was a songwriter (laughs) (laughs) because he said so. Yeah. And that was, um, that was my start in, in the music business. You know, you hit on something there. Uh, I can only speak for myself and my experiences, but I know other, other people have, similar ones um and the disappointments and the door slammed you know time after time man that can really get discouraging if you let it really get to you and let the rats run loose in your brain you know you start thinking you're the problem like you're you're not good enough or yeah whatever why would i put myself there i remember one guy this is how old i am it was a reel to reel tape that i had dropped off at his office and when I went to get it back, it was returned to me in a, in a like a, a, a brown paper bag that obviously had had a tuna fish sandwich in it. It was <laughs> nah. dripping with tuna fish oil. Wow. And my tape was, you know, in the, in the box. And I, I thought, wow, this, this is really a low point. <laughs> really, I, it just, this is really a low point. What people, you know, uh, put up with such... Well, that was to me. That was abuse. <laughs> it was like, and people would invite you into their offices, and they'd take a phone call. Yeah, and your tape would be running, and then at the end of the call, they said, "Not what we're looking for," or you know, and they hadn't even spent five seconds focusing on it. Right. All this stuff is coming back to me right now. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's all coming back to me right now, like a bad dream. Yeah, terrible, terrible stuff, but. If there's something in you that, which, which is the thing, if some people have to do it, because mm-hmm. if you don't have to do it, why the hell would you? Mm-hmm. So you have to do it. So I, I didn't really feel like I had a choice. And then after six, seven or eight years had gone by, you know, people in New York were saying, if he was going to do anything, he would have done it by now. Mm. You know, that was the word I was, you know, he would have done it by now if he was going to do anything. Um, and that really was hard because I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking, well, I would have done it by now. Like there's some time frame or some yeah. you know, roadmap. So um, that was really, then I really felt I was going uphill because then I wasn't 17 anymore. I was 24. And I was so old. But I had been banging around for seven or some, you know, something years during that time. And as I said, I had record deals, I got cuts, and it didn't seem, you know, 
the world has their own, you know, measure of success. Yeah. And, you know, screw that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. Know, success happens, can happen every day on many levels that don't reach public success. Sure. Or they can happen publicly, but a little quiet. Sure. You know, not, not go through the roof. Yeah. You know, so it's complicated. People who pursue creative dreams. It's really complicated. Yeah, as Waylon Jennings said, it's a hard road to hoe. And, you know, all those disappointments, they always made me want to try harder. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'll am i be damned if you're going to sit here and tell me I ain't good enough or I ain't yes. whatever. Yes. Marketable or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I had... One person I was working with, a producer, he told me I was a writer, but I was not a singer. I was not an artist, quote, unquote. Uh, mm. Then I got signed to Capitol Records, or I got offered a deal at Capitol Records. And I went into him and I told him, I'm not going to be working with you anymore because I have this opportunity. He wanted to record me right then and there. All of a sudden, I was an artist. He wanted to take me in the studio that very minute and record me. (laughs) No, I didn't say you weren't. Yes, you did. I never said you weren't an artist. I said you weren't quite red. I said, well, look, I said, you know, I respect your opinion, but somebody else thinks otherwise. So why wouldn't I go there? Yeah. Yeah. So. The, some of these, you know, some of these corporate label people, uh, big publishers, big agents, publicists, whatever, they really, it's, I'm amazed just, Sometimes you can kind of be at a place where a lot of them's gathered. You can kind of sit back and watch, and it just makes me want to vomit. Well, you know, they I hate to paint with a broad brush, but they lack humanity. Oh, yeah. That's the problem. You know, they, they – and people in a lot of <laughs> parts of life and all – but in, in, in my experience in the music business and the television business, not all of them, but – you know, they lack humanity and empathy and all kinds of things that it would be nice to have if you're dealing with creative people. Absolutely. It just, or, if, or you're dealing with anybody, but yeah. you're dealing with creative people who are, you know, putting themselves on the line and saying, do you like this? Do you like me? And, you know, unfortunately, it's being presented to the worst possible slice of humanity, <laughs> the, the worst possible slice of um, people you'd want to be vulnerable to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. But I assume if they could do it, they would have. Right. (laughs) Right. I'm just assuming that a lot of them kind of would have liked to. Yeah. So. Yeah. Maybe why they got involved in the business in the first place. Yeah. Some of them have some anger and resentment. Sure. About what they didn't do. I was surprised to find out a lot of, executives had had little flirts flirtations with being writers or singers it's kind of amazing uh a a lot of them one of the biggest person people i was ever signed to no idea that he did a little novelty recording kind of an embarrassing one you know early on as a singer and so you almost get the feeling like they didn't get to live their dream that so 
and I'll smack you around. Cru- yeah, yeah, then yeah. crush yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hate to, you know. Again, not everybody. Yeah, but too many. Yeah, Way yeah. Too I, many. I think so too. It makes a lot of sense, you know. Yeah. Uh, the uh, how did you get? How'd you get noticed before you got the offer from Cap? From oh, I was um, I was writing with this writer, and then I was writing with um, a lady, and I was taking name Estelle Levitt, and I was you know I was dropping songs around town at different places, and usually usually you never heard back anything, and one day I was writing with her. And she said to me, Richard Landis called me. I don't know who he was. And uh, he asked me what you look like. He said, somebody called you and asked you what I look like? Yeah, and he just got a job as the head of East Coast A&R for Capitol Records. I said, that's kind of strange, whatever. So... um, Either I just called him or I had a lawyer who was working with me. Just called him up. And, uh, you know, I had had this song on hold for a group called the Bay City Rollers in the 1970s and uh, didn't get cut. And then the guy at this publishing company was friends and played it for Richard. Richard heard it and he thought it was a hit. And... I went and met with him and he liked every song I played him. That had never happened to me before ever. He liked every song I played him. Wow. And, you know, it was like, and then he signed me to Capitol records and then the disaster began. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's now a, he became a big producer in Nashville. He produced all of Juice Newton's hits uh, and really super talented guy. But we just crossed paths at the wrong time uh, in each other's lives. Yeah. And uh, man, did it go bad. <laughs> we, uh, we made an album together. It was never uh, released. Mm. And it's kind of amazing we made it out alive. <laughs> together it got really it got really really bad you know uh, i think he had put his job on the line to sign you know i was the first act and he this was his new job and i was the first act that he signed an unknown unpublished unrecognized 20 year old and so there was a lot of pressure on him and i felt it and all of a sudden i couldn't sing oh. i got to the microphone and i couldn't sing oh man for week for weeks and I understand now what that must have done to him mm-hmm. because he had, you know, but at the time, you know, it was the seventies and there was drugs and uh, maybe he thought that would help me to sing <laughs> better. It didn't. Uh. <laughs> and uh, it just, wow. And uh, it was really, we really never have spoken about it. I, we, I think we s- exchanged an email some few years back. 
but it was really a difficult time. But that's how I got discovered. Mm. That's how I got discovered. And uh, to this day, when I look back on the music business, one of my biggest regrets is my Frankie Valley record that never happened. Oh. There was this guy, Charlie Colello. He was the arranger of arrangers at that time. And he was arranging my record as a favor to Richard. They were friends. And at the same time, he was producing Frankie Valley in the next studio. Mm. And he was working on my stuff. One day he comes into me. He says, I'm cutting your song with Frankie Valley tomorrow. You know, it's iconic. That's, he says, I'm cutting your song. He said, you know, we, we've been holding it. We, we didn't think we have a single and we think this, we might've found a single. So, so I'm going crazy, crazy. And Richard comes in, what's going on? I said, Frankie Valley's cutting my song tomorrow. What? Which one? I said, you know, only my woman knows. No, he's not. I said, what do you mean? No, he's not. I said, yeah, no, I looked at Charlie. Charlie says, well, if he says I can't, I, and Richard went ballistic. He like pinned me against the wall. The spit was coming out of his face. I fucking put my job, my career on the line to sign you. And you want to give away your best song to another artist. Don't you believe in me? And I said, I said, Richard, it's not another artist. It's fucking Frankie Valley. <laughs> and you know, as well as I do, that the best way to launch an unknown artist is for them to have a hit with somebody else or some cult. Well, he was having none of it. And Frankie Valley never cut my song. Mm. A year later, I was coming out of a recording session and Frankie Valley was walking in the studio. And I introduced myself. And before I could say anything, he said, you wrote Only My Woman Knows. I think. <laughs> a year later. Wow. You still remember the song. And so that's one of my biggest regrets in my music business looking back, that I had something and, you know. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's how stuff happens. But that was my Capitol Records um, experience. That was... That was my record deal, my first one. Made a record that got shelved. <laughs> the record got shelved. <laughs> like a lot of artists do. Like a lot of artists do. And I got robbed. Mm. And and poor Richard probably had 20 nervous breakdowns mm. in the course of that. But you know what? Then he went on and started making hits with Juice Newton and Lori Morgan and had an incredible career and i went on and did stuff and i think i said to him during our email i said i think we were two really talented people who crossed paths wrong time at the wrong time you know a lot of the stuff is is timing you know it really is it's talent but it's timing oh my gosh I, i mean yeah i was signed to a publisher big publisher and i got fired at the end of 1981 and my whole i mean my rent i didn't know how i was going to pay my rent i didn't know if i'd ever get another deal i my self-confidence was 
you know, somebody tells you you're a disappointment to them. <laughs> so, um, and uh, I don't know, two months, three months later, uh, we got the script to Cheers. And if, if I hadn't been fired by that publishing company, I would not have been able to to write the Cheers theme because the publishing, when you write a TV theme and you're 25 years old, publishing goes to the, the studio. Oh, yeah. Producing. I mean, so, you know, if I hadn't gotten fired, which at the time was one of the most humiliating, depressing things that ever happened. And that publisher had the nerve to call me up after Cheers happened and said, when exactly did you write that theme? When, when, when did you actually write it? Oh, <laughs> yeah. And um, I wanted to say one minute after midnight <laughs> on the date that you fucking fired me. <laughs> that would have been the best answer ever. Yeah, but I didn't have the guts. So I just said, oh, about a month or two. I wanted to say one minute after midnight. I said, you know, a couple of months later. Because um, <laughs> they have no shame. Can you imagine? Oh, yeah. Ruthless. Oh, I forgot to tell you, I wrote it when I was signed to you. So uh -huh. I guess you're the publisher. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's they'll they'll do whatever they can. I mean I've I've bottom fields. I've never had the big you know, big cuts. Uh John Schneider has recorded a few of my songs. And I've he, had some independent he, cuts. He was he, he was born where where I am sitting right now. I mean he was Mount born, Kisco? Yes, I'm I'm in Chapel I am two miles from there. Really? Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> He talks about that very highly. Anytime he talks about Mount Kisco, New York. Yeah. Uh, was Jackie Gleason born there too? Oh, I think I might have read that. Because I'm not he, sure, but now that you mentioned, I think I might have read that. Yeah. He told me that he thought he was because he met him uh, once when he when they were doing Smokey and the Bandit. He actually snuck on the set as an extra and got to talk to Jackie Gleason, and he said oh, they, that's what they talked about. That they came from the same place. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, but I've not had the big time, you know, deal. Uh, yeah. But I can imagine all of the bullshit that would go into that. If there's anybody involved, even, you know, some of these shady co-writers. Yeah. You know, they can kind of pull some, pull some crap, too. I tell you. Yeah, I'm. I'm really lucky. I come from a different time and place, or maybe it's my personality, but the whole time that I was writing songs at any point in time, I had one co-writer who I was writing 90%. And then there were a few people I would write the occasional song with. I never had writing appointments where I was, you know, had a book where I wrote with right. Jack on Monday, Jill on Tuesday until I spent time in Nashville. That's the, yeah. Which was years later. But during my years of what I consider to be the years of my career, I, I actually wrote with very few people. And whoever I wrote with was a, we were, you know, if not soulmates, it was a real partnership and, and collaboration with all the problems that any marriage would have. But so I never, you know, I've heard such horrible co-writer and collaboration stories. I think I was spared all of that is I was always in a personal relationship with anybody I wrote with for the first 20 years until I got to Nashville, actually. Yeah. <laughs> until, I, until I dropped into town. 
in the 90s. And that was different. <laughs> it was very different. Oh, and it's different now than it was in the 90s. Right. That's what I, under, that's what I understand from my friends there. I, I hate going up there. Oh. I, I, I try to avoid it any time I can. Yeah. yeah. I go maybe once or twice a year now, but yeah. it's a machine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it definitely is much worse now than – but it was changing when I – in the late '90s, when I popped into town, is when I think it, I think that was all kind of changing and happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, from you know, from what I understand from the people who've been there throughout, but um, I loved I loved going to Nashville, but not not for the writing. I made I made friends at a time in my life when you don't expect to make new friends, and I just had you know, writing was the excuse. Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, I just had the best. I didn't care about the writing <laughs> or else it would have been a frustrating place, a really frustrating place. I didn't care. I was having so much fun with the people that I met and, uh, you know, I'm still great friends with a handful of them. Yeah. Um, but the writing, I, I couldn't stand writing in Nashville. It just was not, I mean, such incredibly talented, oh, yeah. crafty, fast crafty talented people but i just don't write that way me and either i couldn't do it and sometimes there'd be a song i would write one chord out of the entire song <laughs> and yeah. i would say i can't be a chorus. no that's an important chord you know no one ever yeah. tried to take me off a song but i felt funny being on a song i can't tell you how many times the guitars would get picked up and they would just write a song or as they called it, pounding one out. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't yes. pound out. I write, you know, I never pound it out. Yeah. And they would have books. They'd have a morning writing appointment and an afternoon writing appointment and an evening. And so I, I realized very early on, I can't do this. It's not how I, it's not me. It's, my rhythms are off. Everything's off. Um, so that's when I discovered how to just have fun, you know, make writing appointments as an excuse for going there. And then just, you know, I was always so happy when they got canceled. And uh, the morning of, there's this restaurant, Meredith's in Franklin, and they have the best oatmeal bread and eggs out in the world. And we would just, oh, man, we're going to go to Meredith's. We don't have to write today. And my writing partner, my writing partner would say that I willed them away. She'd say that I had the ability to will these co-writers away to get them to cancel, so we could go to Meredith's and have egg salad. <laughs> Maybe I did. You know, I tried really hard, and uh, and then every night we'd be out having fun. Yeah. You know, fun is you know, I don't. I never had that much fun in my life as in Nashville, but. You know, I had already kind of done my thing in the business and I saw the fishbowl that it's like, if this is your shot and this is what, you know, your chance or whatever, uh, it's so incestuous. It's such a small town. Everyone's nipping at each other's tails and their heads and they're exchanging co-writers and, and, and I can only imagine what goes on when they pick songs to cut, the politics. The, oh, yeah. It's crazy, you know, it's really crazy. And having gone through that 
once before in a different way. Early in my career, I had no intention of, of going through it again. You know, I walked into this one office. And, you know, I had a lot of appointments there that people had to see me because I had connections in New York and Los Angeles, and they would, the companies were attached. And they, So I walked into meetings. I knew they didn't want any part of me, but they were forced to see me. Mm-hmm. And so those were unpleasant. And, uh, you know, I had quite a few... Um, awkward, unpleasant meetings. Yeah. But then I had fun. Yeah. Then I had a lot. Then I had. So my memories of Nashville are, are really, I haven't been there in eight or 10 years, but my memories are good ones, but not of the music business. Again, not of the music business. And now that you hear, it's just really. Yeah. A sad place. It is. Uh, when I started going up to Nashville to co-write, um, it was it was just like that, and um, I kind of learned real quick that I didn't I didn't enjoy that type of atmosphere. There was no chemistry in the room. It was just like a, a it, it was like a task. We got to get this done and then go eat and go to lunch. You know, like you said and knock one out i mean that, that's that's what they yeah. say that's how they refer to the stuff because they do yeah. they write four songs a day and yeah yeah you know i respect the best of them because i couldn't do it if i wanted to mm-hmm. but i don't want to and i couldn't do it and uh you know i felt ineffective you know and i'm a good writer yeah that's just not how i can right yeah, it's it's incredible to me. Guitars come out and the strumming starts and the words start flying and like I said, some of them are just incredibly talented, yeah. crafty people. They are, but I can't do it. Yeah, I can't either. I'm I'm I have to be inspired. Yeah, and uh, feels you have to feel something. Yeah. You do. Relate to something, you know, have it mean something. Yeah. Um, and we're in music in general. I feel like in the masses, in the commercial side of it, we got less and less of that. The, well, li- the lyrics don't mean a damn thing anymore. The music all sounds the same. Yeah. It's amazing. The yeah. voices yeah. sound the same even. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I, I'm so great. You know, I was a child of the seventies. Mm. And the 60s, even even the 60s when I was really, you know, the 60s and the 70s, to me, that is the most amazing songwriting time. I, I don't know, I didn't know about country music then, although back then the charts had everything on it. Yeah. You know, you could have, you know, you could have Brown Sugar and I Never Promised You a Rose Garden and it yeah. didn't matter the genre of the song and right. the Jackson Fox. But that being said, I didn't know about the country songs that hadn't crossed over the pop. But mm. the songs at that time were just, you know, I have my Spotify playlist of 500 songs that I listened to. And I'd say probably 450 are from that time frame, 60s and the 70s. So those songs tickle me. Those songs bring me joy. Those songs amaze me. Those songs inspire me. The 80s came along and the techno stuff started happening in the 90s and the the angry street stuff started happening and then 
the, the to me the genuineness of country music started you know put let's put auto tuners and go pop and put that on it yeah let's all sing the same thing and now i i haven't I, to me it's gone the music of today it's just and yeah. i sometimes think it's because i'm old no so i relate to the music of my youth but i very rarely hear anything nowadays that makes me stop and feel something and go wow yeah you have to go wow you know when you hear a great song or something yeah you know if i'm not listening to uh xm radio i'm listening to some of the guys on the independent circuit doing their own thing i think they're uh the road warriors of these days they're A lot of them's doing it on their own. Yeah. Drawing big money. uh, Got their own publishing. You know, it's a different time now. Yes. But on the other hand, you can't get that out to the masses, you know, without that big label still. I think the big record label days are kind of not, they're not near as important as they used to be. But they're. Yeah. I don't even know what they do because. They put it on streaming service. I mean, how do they promote music? Do they do they put out CDs? I know they release them, but does anybody buy CDs anymore? Maybe people five people. They're streaming music. So that is the nice thing about streaming. At least you have access to the same avenue. Yeah. You know, and maybe they promote. Maybe they can promote the I just I wish Spotify would uh pay up. Oh God. That'd be nice. Oh my gosh. My gosh, can you imagine the the royalties that you would get on Spotify? I know. There's no telling how many times where everybody knows your name has been streamed. Yeah. My God. Well, it's it's if you add up Spotify and you add up iTunes and you add up YouTube, it, it's significant. Yeah. It it seems like the music business has been, has been playing catch up for the past 30 years. Yeah. They're behind it every single time. It's the Wild West, and yeah. they are—they're behind it. I mean, Spotify is starting to slowly, slowly become quasi-moral about what they do. But, like you said, it's just use of creative people, and they wouldn't exist without the song, right? Right? They wouldn't. I think it devalues music, too. Vince Gill said something that really hit on in an interview, something I was reading one time. And he said, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, you know, it's really it really makes a statement when you can go download my new song on iTunes for 99 cents, but then this app is uh, that you can tap and it makes different fart noises is 99 cents also yes <laughs> yeah i thought man yeah there you go yeah. that's a good point yes yeah very true yeah how music did, has, has been devalued how did you ever get into the uh tv side of things that's an interesting thing that a lot of people could try yeah. to break into and i think really don't know how to um 110% by accident. 
Although I did, I, you know, I was a child of television and I had a little bit of a dysfunctional childhood, who among us didn't. So I kind of escaped into the television. And there were only three channels when I was growing up and I learned the TV, the themes to every show on like all three channels. When I was 10 years old or eight years old, having no inkling of anything that was to come, I have this book in a box here somewhere lists all the shows and which ones I can play the theme of. So somewhere early on, the seed was planted. But in reality, I had no, um, I was working on a musical, a Broadway musical, and uh, we had demoed some of the songs and the producers were shopping the tape, trying to get people to invest in the show. And, you know, that's the thing about music. You put it out there, you never know how it gets from it. But somehow this tape that was trying to raise money for the show wound up on the desk. I got, got a call from Glenn and Les Charles, and they said, hi, you don't know us, but we're writing and producing a new show called Cheers. I did actually recognize their name from Taxi, but, but they said, we're doing a new show called Cheers in the fall. We just heard a song of yours, and we, if you'll rewrite the lyrics, we want it to be our theme song. That's how I got into television, just a complete fluke. And, uh, of course, they couldn't have that song because it was tied to this show. And the producers of the show, I guess they were like Richard Landis. You want to take away the song from us and give it to... Um, and contractually i couldn't do it so mm. we started trying to write cheers theme when we had already written it and had to you know, not use it mm. so again turned out to be a good thing i would not have wanted that other song to be the theme from cheers yeah but but it was still torture for months it seemed like years to to go from that to the next one to the next one and finally come up with uh, where everybody knows your name but that's how i got into television without planning to without trying to without meaning to it just the door open it's interesting too uh for those of you that uh want to hear all the kind of steps to get to the final product here if you go to your website garyportnoy.com on there you've got even the demos yeah, the work yeah. tapes to all of this stuff and yes. then the final product. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so many people asked me how it happened. So, I, so this guy who was working on putting a little website together for me, I guess it now it's been, he said, why don't you just write it out? And then it's there, you know? So uh, I did it. I'm really glad I did. Even, yeah. even, even when I read what we went through, I go, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> that was, Ooh, lucky. That's really cool, lucky. though. You lucky know. that, lucky that it something didn't drop out along the way, and you know, well, I'm forever grateful to Glenn and Les Charles because I don't think they ever gave. You know, if you were in the music business and you needed a a couple of cuts, you had a couple of cuts left on an album. You know, or, needless to say, you'd have two hundred people coming at you with songs, yeah, or five hundred. And to my knowledge, they never, from the moment they heard that first song of ours, they never 
gave it, they never asked anyone else to write, which is amazing. Man. They, they never asked anybody else. They just st- stood with us. I don't know why. We were nobody. Wow. But they must have heard something or they stood with us through, through all of it. I think at some point the network might have gotten a little bit fancy, like, you know, put some pressure on them or whatever. But they just stayed with us. Um, that doesn't happen that much, you know, in any, no. <laughs> in any creative business. So a lot of things had to line up for that to happen. Amazing. And and did you did you get the the piano riff you know that everybody knows in the beginning? Did you just did that just kind of come to you, or did you kind of dink it around and worked it out? Or no, that was very when we when we finished when we wrote the song. You know, we really liked it, but I said to Judy, my co-writer Judy Hart Angela, I said, you know. This is never going to be anybody's TV theme. I said, it's it's slow, it's sad, it's melancholy. I said, this is not a TV theme. Um, and she, as I recall, was a long time, she said, well, maybe we can put something on it. And, in, you know, that, you know, if somebody goes into the kitchen to get a sandwich or a beer or something, something that'll say, you know, come back in, something's, you know, there is a, there, there's something happening. There's a thing, you know, so maybe an announcement. So I just, as a joke, I started playing, I said, well, oh, like the, tw- like the queen's trumpets. And I was doing like, da, 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 da. And Judy, who has amazing ears said to me, wait, 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 do that again. I'm like, seriously, da, 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 no, stop, stop, shorten it, shorten it, shorten it. And that's, you know, it, it was an afterthought. And I was just joking around. And she heard something. And that's how that got sewn. You know, it makes me nervous to think of all the things that had to fall into place. You know, it makes me nervous. Because it's really possible, don't you think, that without that, it might not have been a TV theme because it's, you know, it, it might have been a really fine song that just wasn't suited for, I don't know. I don't know. So another, you know, sometimes the universe has plans and, you know, it's going if, to, if, I think if you're open, it's going to lead you to where you need to be led. Absolutely call it God, you know, God has plans. And I think if you're open to following and, you know, you just believe that something's happening for a reason, mm-hmm. you know, I think you, I think you get there because, yeah. you know, with this little song, so many things had to fall into place and uh, it could have been a, you know, I've got some really good songs on my shelf that no one's ever going to hear. We all do. And uh, this could have been one of them. Ouch. Mm. It could have been. You know, it could have been one of them. Wow. Mo- probably the most iconic theme song uh, riff. Yeah. Just iconic. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be a 
a wonderful feeling, but also a strange feeling knowing that that's you, man, you know, (laughs) you know, it is. And honestly, I didn't really, it's only, I swear to you, it's only in past number of years that I, that I get that iconic part because for the first 20 years, there was no internet and I'm a pretty um, reclusive kind of person. Out, I don't. I'm not a. I'm so glad to be out of the out of the music business, out of the TV business. Did my thing. I'm okay. You know, leave me. So for 20 years, I mean, I knew that Cheers was popular. I knew that people liked this song, but I honestly, honestly, never had any sense of a larger picture than that with this song. And then the internet came along, and and I was late to the internet. 2000, like. Well, I was late to the internet. And this, this guy said, you know, let me put together a little website for you. And from the moment that website went up, t- almost 20 years ago, like not a day has gone by. All right, maybe two. Not, not two days have gone by that I don't hear from somebody I don't know somewhere in this country or somewhere in the world. Um, you know, saying the nicest, most heartfelt things. And, and so over time, I've come to, you know, unless it's used in a commercial, then I get horrible abuse, terrible. <laughs> then I'm a prostitute. I'm a whore. Uh-huh, yeah. I heard and it in Applebee's just, the other day. Yes. Yeah. Can I tell you something? I've made my piece. I, I've never been in an Applebee's. I'm a vegetarian. Um, I've never been in an Applebee's, but I loved that commercial. As I was getting mail telling me that I was a sellout and I had destroyed Cheers. Well, you know something? I'll tell you something. I don't, my allegiance is not to Cheers. It's, that's my song. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled for Cheers, but I, I view Cheers as like the mothership that I, we separated from. Yes. And, you know, because try and find cheers on TV now, but the song. So anyway, so anyway, um, I have, I loved that commercial. Why? Because there was no voiceovers to the, there was no actors. It wasn't cute. It wasn't got to hear the song, the song and it's in a pure form. And, you know, after 39 years, it's nice to hear the song 10 times a day, you know, and if, even if you don't look at the screen and see that it's Apple, but you're hearing the song and I loved it. So, um, so, you know, screw you, all you commercial haters. I made my, I made my peace with it. There've been a couple that I hated myself, but, um, you know, since I don't control the publishing in that song and these people don't even know what publishing is before they lash out at you and accuse you of, I've never had the responsibility of deciding where that song gets used to where it doesn't. Right. I didn't let Applebee's use it. Mm-hmm. I just went along for the ride because I had no choice. And so I liked it. I liked it. And um, I liked having a Super Bowl commercial. You know, I, 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 I didn't see 
any um, disrespect to the song. Any, I think it's mostly people who have an, the feeling of Cheers and what it, what the show was in their life, and the song's place on the show. They get really upset. <laughs> you know, they get really upset. But with the exception of those few people, I, I have, I mean, I get mail that it's just beyond, beyond the beyond the, the, the place that the song, you know, it, it helped somebody get through their chemotherapy. Mm. You, don't, you don't think about that when you write a song. You know, another woman had it tattooed on her body because she said, I have to have it with me all the time. I didn't believe her. And she sent me pictures. She had it tattooed on her ankle. She got the, it goes up and down her leg. And um, there was this one guy. He was, uh, he said he grew up in apartheid, black man in South Africa. And he said during those years, it was a very sad, dark time. And they had very little access to the arts, to anything cultural, anything creative. He said, but the one thing that got me through was that song. He said, that song in my childhood in apartheid in South Africa lifted my spirits every time. I, well, now, 20 some odd years later at the time, he's a professor of chemistry at the university in Johannesburg. And he said to me, he was in his classroom or his lab, and the song just came on out of nowhere. And he broke down. They thought he was, people thought he was crazy. He broke down sobbing. This connection from his, his childhood and apartheid to where he found himself now teaching at a university and the connection with the song. You know, so, I mean, I was sobbing when I, when I read his email. And, um, you know, those are extreme examples, but, you know, I watched it with my dad every Thursday. My dad passed away, and now I'm watching it with my son, and we're you know, streaming it with my son. And it's the only show we don't skip the theme song on when we, you know, <laughs> just people. People say the nicest things to me. You know, where do I come off? You know, how did I come off being, you know, so blessed to, you know, to to be able to receive that on a incredibly regular basis so now i do understand that song is iconic (laughs) i I never say that but i do understand now that it's iconic and that that it has a place in people's hearts that a typical song or even a hit song might not it has a i don't know Maybe it's the longevity of it, the enduring, you know, I mean, you can have a hit song and have saturation on the radio wherever people listen now. But in my day, you know, for three to six months or a year, and then you'd hear it. But, you know, I'm so grateful that people still give a crap about this song. Forty Next year is 40 years that it was written. Did I just say that? (laughs) You said it. I don't remember being that young. Mm. You know, I was 25. I don't remember anything really about it, but I do know it's been 40 years and pe- people still seem to care about that song. Lucky me. You know, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents uh, when I was young. 
when when Cheers was on. My granddaddy, they both did, but my granddaddy loved Cheers. He just laughed. I mean, he barely laughed. And I, of course, heard that song uh, along with all the other ones, you know, MASH, Magnum P.I., and uh, God, there were so many good themes. I miss theme songs. Yeah, yeah. But it's um, it's really sad. You know, they, you know, I had my book with my theme. You know, it, I think it's such a shame because I think they were part of uh, Americana, part of America, of American absolutely. life. Because, you know, sometimes TV was your babysitter. Sometimes it was your entertainment. Sometimes, you know, and the theme songs were so. In, incredible and so um, I did a, a, a special with uh, CNN with Don Lemon called Where Have All the Theme Songs Gone This Summer and because uh, people really don't know <laughs> what, what you know exactly what happened and I started you know in my experience it, it was you know, pure greed because you know we started out writing 60 second themes and then I remember the first time somebody came to us and said, yeah, we'd like you to write us a theme, 45 seconds. Like, oh, okay, I guess I can do that. And then 30. Mm. And then 20. And then I'm not kidding you, 10. <sighs> and uh, I couldn't, not, I didn't want to do it, but I couldn't do it. You know, I'm not, I'm not an arranger or a composer or a conductor. I don't compose themes like that. I always wrote songs and then edited them down and not to 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. So I stopped doing it. I just said, I'm not, I've had so much fun writing TV themes. It's been a blast. I'm not writing a 10 second. I can't. And if I could, I don't want to, but it really, I think was just read so they could get more commercials. Yeah. So they could, so they could, and, but what they took away, um, and, you know, uh, the theme that Judy and I wrote for a kid's show, Punky Brewster, they did in 1980, they did a reboot last year. I didn't choose to watch it, but they did a reboot and they took our 60 second theme and they edited it down with a new performance to nine seconds, <laughs> not eight, not 10. They edited it down to nine seconds. And, um, you know, I got the hate mail. Of course. What you just did to my childhood. How could you do, you know, people don't understand. No. The that and I said, you know, why don't you write to Soleil Moonfry? You know, she's yeah. the executive producer of this reboot. And um, I said, I didn't do it. I would never, you know, I would never have done that. But people love their theme songs and they take them rather seriously. Yeah. And I, and I do too. You know, I, some of the warmest feelings that I have, musical feelings that I have, are theme songs from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Sure. And they're gone. They're gone. Uh, you know, the first song I learned to play on piano was your your song, where everybody mm-hmm. knows your name. Huh. That's how much it stuck with me. Wow. Uh, it, was in a, it was in a sheet music book that I had, similar yes. to how you said... You know the TV theme songs. Yes, you had. I kind of had that. Had that too. Uh, 
TV was an escape. It's not that easy to play that song. I don't know. People, people, it doesn't seem to be an easy, necessarily an easy song to play. So I'm glad that you learned it. I learned it in C. Oh, okay. So it's a hell of a lot easier in C. (laughs) People don't know the difference. (laughs) No. Yeah. And there's that one chord that nobody ever plays right. Wouldn't you like to get away chord? Yeah. It's some kind of diminished chord, and they always make it a major or a minor. And it very rarely just do I hear somebody um, play that um, right. Well, I'm lucky I have a auto uh, transposer. Transpose, yeah. Because I can't sing it in the original key anyway. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have to lower it three three halves three. So I'm really playing it in G. But I'm still playing it in B flat thanks to the transposer yeah. on my electronic keyboard. I didn't have to learn it in G. Right. But just so you know, I on a very rare is the day that I could hit those notes in. That's what happens to a voice over forty years time. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. It tends to get lower. Yeah. Uh and you know another thing, besides writing a song was it Glenn and Les? Did they want you to perform it also? I, I, all I heard were, we wrote the song, we handed it over, and I can't, I don't remember because my esteemed co writer, who would never let me touch the lyric books, lost them. No. So, you know, I can't tell, I am curious myself. I want to know when that song was written, I want to know where Mercury was in the she's lost you know i couldn't touch them you know, I, I was going to lose them i was, yeah so hopefully she'll find not like but anyway so i'm not sure of the exact time frame but many many months went by and i just got a call saying you have to come out to california tomorrow and record this song i don't know exactly what happened but i heard that there were two very well-defined camps of people one one group wanted me to sing it because they loved my demo. And the other group wanted to get somebody famous to sing it because nobody on Cheers was famous. Nobody knew Shelley Long. Nobody knew Ted Danson. Nobody knew this. This show was just completely unknown. So they felt at least let's get somebody famous to sing the theme song. And I heard all kinds of rumors from Kenny Rogers to who I don't know who. But the bottom line is, I don't know exactly what happened, but I just know I got a call. You know, you have to come out here tomorrow and record this. I had pretty much maybe forgotten about it, recording it. So I don't know exactly what happened, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was Glenn and Les Strauss because they didn't care if somebody was famous. They, they could have cast famous actors yeah. if they wanted to. No, they cared about who spoke their words the best, who had chemistry with one another when they cast that show and when they hired us, that's what they cared about. So I I would bet anything that probably like the network probably wanted to get somebody, maybe NBC probably wanted to get somebody famous and, and Glenn and Les Charles probably used whatever power they had to, uh, but it clearly went down to the wire because it was just a few weeks before the show went on that I went and, Oh, (laughs) no pressure. Yeah, yeah. 
Yes. Mm. Maybe it's better that I didn't know that it was coming. It happened really, really quickly. And, um, and I didn't know any of the musicians. I was, you know, I'm a New Yorker. I was in Los Angeles. I didn't know any of the other musicians. I walked into a completely foreign situation. On a huge soundstage at Paramount Pictures, you know, big enough for orchestras. They could record, you know, Star Warsers. And mm. there's just like four of us in this massive, massive stage. And uh, it was it was a little overwhelming. But of course, I thought this show would run one episode and fail. No one was ever going to hear it. You know, I didn't have that pressure on me at all. You know, otherwise, forget it. Mm-hmm. But it was just a, you know, pilot. Well, they had they had a 13 episode commitment, but it was just a new show. Yeah. And most new shows fail. Yeah. You know, so. That was my singing experience. Well, you nailed it. It seems like another lifetime ago, though. I bet. But I did. I knew. I did know that. It's a good vocal. You it's did. a good vocal. <laughs> oh yeah. And who's doing the backup on that? Just some session. Yeah, I. I, Me. I wondered I about that. Yeah, I did all the parts. Wow. You know, um, they when they flew me out there, they just said they just duplicate your demo you know just the demo was piano vocal but they just said you know with the with the whatever band just do whatever you did so i just did exactly what i did on the uh, demo and then i was taken into some lady's office in the music department at paramount pictures and she had this she had the track sheet in front of her. she's like what did you do there's like 10 vocal tracks. I said, I did what I was at. Well, there's no way we can pay you for all these vocal tracks. I said, well, I did what I was asked to do. I wasn't padding the vocal. I just, you know, I was. So, um, again, 25 years old, she, she got her calculator. And she said, this is the best we can do. I didn't know. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a manager. I didn't know that I was now a member of the Screen Actors Guild and they would have gone fight for me tooth and nail. They are the best union. I didn't know any of that. So I said, okay. And so my, my singing fees forever were locked in in that woman's office. <laughs> Apparently, you know what I mean? And look, and she did pay me for like six, I mean, I've done really, really well on those vocals, especially if it's in an Applebee's commercial. But mm-hmm. what I'm saying is that um, I did not get what I did. I didn't get paid for what I did. And you don't realize that most things that we do in this business don't have long-term implications because nobody gives a, you know, yeah. I wrote the song, who cares? I sang this, who cares? You don't know when it's the one time when it's going to have implications forever right so i always tell people you know protect yourself because you don't know when this what seems like the smallest of something is going to turn out to be the biggest of something yeah that doesn't happen every day and you don't always get a redo so you know always 
I always tell people to always stick up for themselves. Always, if they have to get somebody to, you know, represent them or never assume that it doesn't matter because you're giving away nothing because you could be giving away, you know, so much. Yeah. But we, we learn from our, our, our lessons. But sure. my grandparents never got to see Cheers. They died the year before. Mm. So they never got to see it. You're, you're lucky your, your grandparents got to. Um, but I always felt that my grandma sent it to me. I always felt that I felt her, her hand over the entire thing. Mm. Getting fired by the publisher again. I felt her, you know, uh, I believe what I believe. And, and that's what I felt. So she may not have seen it here, yeah. but because <laughs> it wasn't here to be seen. But I think there were loving forces at play. Yeah. That's, but I uh, wish I could have watched it with my grandparents. That would have been so cool. I have, I have a feeling they saw it. Yeah. No question. We're on the same page with that. Uh, one of the things that I thought was really clever, even as a young kid, uh, the ending theme, where it just shows the empty bar, and it's like a melancholy version of the thing, yeah. uh, kind of jazzy a little bit, but it kind of it gives you the idea of like closing time. Like It's yep. kind of sad. Yeah. Did, yep. did you play that? I played it. It wasn't my idea. When I got when, we, when I got to the session to do the vocals, it was put in front of me, you know, and they brought in the clarinet player and, you know, and we did it. It was, it might've been um, Craig Saffin, the guy who did the, all the incidental music for the show. It might've been him. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's, I think that it, it nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember the stopwatch because it had to be like, I don't know, 30 seconds. I remember we kept doing it and doing it and doing it because it was too short or it was too long or it was, you know, and trying to keep the feeling. Yeah. And then luckily one time, but I thought that was a great, yeah. And it is melancholy. And, you know, Cheers itself is melancholy. And they wanted the theme at one point. They said, you know, just think of people at two o'clock people who are left in a bar at two o'clock in the morning, you know, right before they go home. I like that. Yeah. That's what they said to us at some point when they were trying to coax us through the process. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's the opening of the song itself also, I think is, you know, which is why we needed the da, 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 da. Yeah. You know? Oh Yeah. We didn't know how much melancholy America was ready for. Right. But we willing to. Um, and they didn't watch the show for the first 10 weeks or whatever. Mm-hmm. They said. But boy, they did after that. Yes. Well, you know, it, it makes me sick to say this, but Bill Cosby. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. NBC. I mean, it, it was the Cosby, you know, it got through the first couple of seasons on word of mouth. And just cause it was damn good. 
Yeah. But it was not a hit show. And it was season to season, renewal, renewal time. It was not until 1984, the Cosby show came on and lifted all of us up. And then once it was seen by the, they were watching Too Close, to, Too Close for Comfort with Ted Knight and Simon and Simon on CBS. But once once it got mass viewed, you know, it, it obviously stood on its own. But without the Cosby show, I don't know. Yeah. There's no way of telling uh, how long NBC would have uh, would have uh, would have stuck with it. So, yeah, that's an area of co- point of conflict. Uh, a little bit. <laughs> a uh, but you can't deny no. that <laughs> the truth is the truth that time i mean that 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 was that was that had to be just life-changing for sitcoms yeah. during was, that time yeah yeah it was it was it was it was pretty amazing nbc went from they had nothing Mm-hmm. It's, one of, it's one of the reasons they gave Cheers a 13-episode commitment and stayed with it when no one was watching. They had nothing at the time. And then within a few years, man, you know, and that was the precursor of the Seinfeld years and the Will and Grace years. And the, yeah. it was it was the rebirth of, of sitcoms and NBC. They were saying sitcoms were dead. And, mm-hmm. You know, I don't think anything is ever dead if it's done right, if it comes back and it's done right, I don't think it's ever dead, but they had it dead, dead in the water. That was an amazing time. Must see TV. Yeah. Thursday night, must see TV. Uh, now I know people too are curious. Did you play those little minor deals where they would show the outside of the bar at the beginning of the show and, where they showed the cheers filmed in front of a live studio audience, the little. When, when I did the session, the theme, he had those written out for the first five or six shows. And so I happened to play those for the first five or six shows, but then there were 265 more shows and I had nothing to do with it. I happened to play the ones that were put in front of me that day. And then uh, Craig Saffin, who did the incidental music, did all, you know, he wrote new ones, new ones, new ones, new ones. And, yeah. and I had nothing, you know, I, I always tell people I worked on Cheers for one day. And, uh, you know, they worked for 11 years. I worked for one day, not counting the months that it took to write that song, but yeah, actually working on Cheers, it was a one hour session. And that was my total involvement <laughs> with, with the, with the show. But I did play on, I did play on the first, first few of those, uh, incidental minor things. Yeah. It, it was, uh, it was such a great, it is such a great yeah. show. I still watch it when it comes on and I know it's yeah. probably still played in every country daily. And, you know, yeah. it's just, it's, uh, it is iconic. The song's iconic. The show, the characters, it's it's iconic. And, uh, you know, the finale, which was, I think, in 
93? 93, yeah. How did did you uh, – people forget about or maybe don't even know how big a deal that finale was. They actually had a live tonight show with Jay Leno in Boston at the at the oh. Cheers bar right after it, right? I was on that show. And you oh. were on it. Oh my god. And gosh. everybody was having some fun. I'll put that it that was, way. <laughs> that was that was mayhem. Yeah. Pure mayhem. That was pure mayhem. And I probably nerves, I got a really bad case of really bad chest infection just a few days, a week before that show. I didn't think I was going to be able to make it. Mm. And so I was on really heavy antibiotics and I was taking these sleeping pills because I was so congested, I couldn't sleep. So I arrived in Boston on the long story short, I was the only one who wasn't drinking that because I would have, I was on so much medication and, yeah. And and so it was I I was nervous. I didn't go to any of the festivities. Everybody from Cheers watched the show together. I stayed in my hotel room up the block. And then all of a sudden I got this panicked call from the Tonight Show. You know, come. I figured I would just walk over. I didn't know there would be 10,000 people between me and the so I hit the street and it took me forever to get to the Bull and Finch. And once I got there, I was grabbed and mm. back entrance and in a side elevator and up the thing and into the makeup and down the thing. And, then, and that's when I realized everyone is shit-faced. Mm-hmm. These people are, and not in a particularly great way. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know that some of them were a little embarrassed. After. So, um, and, and I went back downstairs waiting to go on and there's ethel kennedy the the table of kennedy's sitting there and warren littlefield the head of nbc's bartender making drinks it was surreal it was absolutely um it was absolutely an insane atmosphere and uh it was raining got out to the piano It, it was just uh, it was traumatic. Mm. I got up the next morning. I drove to Martha's Vineyard and I just stayed in bed for like a week. Mm. And then I realized I was depressed. I didn't realize I was depressed when cheers went off the air. It had been there for so long. Mm-hmm. I had, I didn't realize I was literally like physically depressed for a while. Um, um, but, but that night, wow. It was a big deal. There were news crews from all over the world. Uh, and uh, I got through it. Rio Perlman was shooting me with a water gun while I was singing. <laughs> Thought it was funny. Uh, wow. Yeah, I kind of forgot about that night. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. Now, until just now. <laughs> is, uh, is that the first time you had met the cast? No. Um, I met them when I went out to record the theme. Okay. But I didn't really know who they were because mm-hmm. they weren't anybody. Right. But what I mean by that is, I went out when I first went out when I first went out to report it. They had a big party at the Cheers Bar for the whole NBC Thursday night shows. Oh. But of course, Cheers had never been on yet. Yeah. So nobody even was in. 
but they had the cast of Fame and Cheers and Taxi and Hill Street Blues. And so I met Cheers cast that night. And then I went to a rehearsal. And uh, I saw why they all hated Shelley Long, because she was so fucking good. Mm. And so fucking dedicated to her character. Mm. And so unyielding. I mean, I went to a rehearsal. The show had never been on the air yet. And she kept them all waiting for an hour while she argued with the writers over whether Diane would or wouldn't say this line. I love it. And the other actors were already like rolling their eyes. And, oh, my God, you know, this was the. And apparently they spent five years hating her for it. Mm. But what I saw that day was somebody so dedicated to that character. So anyway, I met them then. And then I didn't meet them for, you know, we got invited to the rap parties and the Christmas parties. I never went. I'm not really a hanger outer. So the next time I met them was a party in Boston for the 200th episode. Oh, yeah, where the uh, Pat McLaughlin. Yes. Right? Yes. That had been taped in advance, but then they had a big party in Boston to watch it together. So I went to that. And, you know, it was strange. I had met them when they were unknowns. Now I met them when they were big TV stars. Mm -hmm. Some of them had changed noticeably. And others of them had not. You know, some of them drank the Kool-Aid and some of them had humility. Mm -hmm. Human nature. Some people change. Some people don't. Yeah. That was a fun night. And then um, the last time I saw them was a couple of years later at the Boston Disaster. Yeah. And then the only other time I ever met them, there was a launch party for Nickelodeon at night in New York. And uh, Kelsey Grammer and George Went and John Ratzenberger were there. It, it was for all the uh, advertisers to announce that it was coming on Nick at Night, I think. Mm -hmm. And I, I was brought out at the very end to sing the, the theme. So I hung out with them a little. But other than that, no, my, our paths... You know, they were like a family working together for 11 years. Yeah. And I I worked for an hour, and then I went home to New York. Yeah. So that was always kind of, people assume when, you, when you're that large a part of a show that you have some, you know, interpersonal connection to it. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't. Mm -hmm. Strange. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, to me, it does. Yeah. I know to a lot of people they want they would want to think, you know, more, but it, it makes total sense to me. Uh, the uh, did any of them ever give you a compliment on on the song or anything like that? Any nice words? Yes, um, yes, um, yeah. Um, John Ratzenberger always always incredibly gracious about the contribution that it had made to the show. Ted Danson gave an interview once and he said at some point he said, we wouldn't have even had to go to work. If they just played that song, people would have watched it. He said, we didn't have to do anything. And just uh, last month, there was a series of specials on CNN called the history of the sitcom. And, and somebody said to, Ted Danson, you know, what do you attribute to the incredible success of the show? And he said, well, the, this, the theme song was kind of brilliant. So 
I thought that was really a very nice, uh, a, a really nice thing to say. And uh, one of the, Jimmy Burroughs, the director of the show, people would always come up to me and say, I ran into Jimmy Burroughs and he said, your song is 35% responsible for the success of Cheers. And I always laughed because it was never 30%. It was never 40%. It was always 35. Yeah. And uh, at least five people who came up to me and said, just saw Jimmy Burroughs. Your song was 35%. So (laughs) I, 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 I feel like we were, uh, appreciated, you know, to a, to a certain extent. We certainly didn't get 35% of the syndication <laughs> revenues. Yeah, that'd been yeah, nice. Jimmy, Jimmy, we did not get 35% <laughs> of the syndication and cable revenues, you mm. know. But um, nonetheless, it was nice, nice of him to at least say that, even if actions speak out of the world. Yeah. Far be it from me to. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that's the greatest thing that you've accomplished or the greatest thing of, of your life, uh, you know, business-wise, professionally? Yeah. Yeah, because, quite frankly, it would be hard to compete with it. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm a good writer, and I've written some good songs. Maybe some people would say great songs. And I have some theme songs that no one will ever hear because uh, they were either rejected by the show that they were written for or they were accepted and the show didn't get on the air or the show got on the air and ran for two episodes because it sucked. So I have some TV themes that I really love that no one's ever going to hear. But I would have to still say that this one is a little bit above it. I wrote a song for fame called I Still Believe in Me that it's the only time in my life I ever handed a rough demo over to somebody and it came back and I wasn't disappointed. I was, you know, I've had great people record my songs, but I I can't honestly say that I ever got thrilled and chilled and improved upon my demo. But this was the one time that it came back and took my breath away. And then when it was filmed for the show, it took my breath away. So that that is a close second to me in terms of creative achievement. But it's apples and oranges. Yeah. The Cheers theme, yes. It is my... I'm lucky that I love the song. Because mm-hmm. I would imagine some people have success with songs they don't love. Or their biggest success is not the one they love the most. Yeah. But I'm I'm lucky. I have to say I love that song, and I probably love it the most of anything I ever wrote. So I don't have to wince every time I hear it or wonder why other people like it. Mm -hmm. Because I'm lucky. I like it. I I liked it from the moment it came into the world. So that's, that's a little bit of a blessing. You read a lot about people who had hits with songs they can't stand yeah, and they're don't stuck with them. them yeah they're stuck with them yeah so I, I, at least i was spared that yeah i love my song <laughs> <laughs> i love it too america and the world loves it yeah i mean as you've seen you know that 
Internet's got its good side, yep. I guess. It's got its bad side too with the trolls that yep. you know want to bash you when you get an Applebee's a song on Applebee's commercial yes. that you had nothing to do with. And I, um, I, I, I won't say one bad thing about that. I'm not going to say one bad thing about it. I love it. Brought it. Me, it brought me some joy. Mm-hmm. You know, it brought me some joy for a couple of months. And I can't be responsible for other people's connections and emotions and lives, you know. No. But um, the internet, yes, the internet, uh, in the case of, of this song and my life, has just been like nobody deserves to have this much positive communication as I get. Nobody deserves that, you know, uh, to keep having that reinforced and validated, you know. Yeah. It's like Sally Field. You love me. You really love me. Yeah. You know, it. she, she got a lot of torture for having done that, but I sometimes say, wow, they really like it. Nobody made that person sit down, find my website, and email me. Nobody made that person in uh, Holland or India or Chicago. You know, nobody made them do that. They searched it out and they took the time to let me know that something I did touched their life in a small way. And in some instances, in a bigger than small way. So I'm, you know, I feel grateful beyond, you know, beyond the beyond. It was worth getting that song back in that tuna fish bag. <laughs> That's ruthless there. That but, guy went to jail, by the way. He really? He really he, yeah, he got, yeah, his company was here. Mm. You should go to jail if you give somebody this song back in tuna fish oil. Oh, hell yeah. You should go to jail. So, sorry for him. You, uh, you made a a record a few years ago, right? Most recently, yeah. Most recently, yeah. I made a few very quietly. Yeah. You know, very quietly. I have this, I have this agreement with the universe. I, don't, I really don't write anymore. I don't try, try to write. I don't sit down. But oh, I have an agreement. Man. I don't. Well, but, but I have an agreement that if something comes to me, I will not push it away. Okay. I will receive it. Okay. I don't, I don't sit down, you know, I, I sat down every day for probably 20 years to write every day. Mm-hmm. I don't write anymore, except if something it comes into my brain or through the, I, I honor my, so every five or six years, it seems they, I get a batch of songs coming to me, mm. even if I don't want them to. Mm-hmm. And so I receive them. And it's not part of the deal that I have to record them, but every it's been about every five or six years I go in and I, because I love the studio, so I, I go in and I record, you know. So I put about I've put out about four CDs, but I never I don't promote them. I don't let anybody know that I did them. I upload them. You know, this is a business where people say I'm doing it for me, but they're not. They're not doing it for them. They want every, I really did them quietly. I uploaded them onto the, out into the digital universe. And um, if anybody ever finds them or likes them, I'm thrilled. 
you know, every four or five years, I get, I get an email that's not about the Cheers theme. It's about a different song. Man, that's amazing. When that happens, I, I just, but it doesn't happen often. But every now and then, and I say, okay, I'm glad that I let that song come into the world. And that, because, you know, that cliche, if, if one, you know, if one, if it makes one person happy or they relate to it or they love it, it's, it's worth doing. Yeah. A lot of people say that, but I actually mean it. Mm-hmm. I'm thrilled that, a, that, you know, a song found its way to somebody and, you know, every four or five years, they tell me about it. But so, yeah, I've got music out there. Um, and uh, some of it's pretty good. Some of it, no. But I, I just leave it to find its way. And it will. The song always will find its way. I, you know, you have to believe that if you're going to put yourself in being a songwriter. You better believe that good song find its way a great song will find its way mm-hmm. and you have to believe in faith my grandpa harry always said gary my boy most important word in the dictionary destiny fate because you know there always is a larger picture and some things you're focused on and you put everything you have into it and they don't lead anywhere and then a tape you send out one place lands on someone else's desk and they call you up and they say this is what we're doing. You know, I guess the moral of the story is keep putting it out. Yeah. Keep putting it out. I'm old, so I have a right to not do that. <laughs> but, you know, but you keep putting it out. Young people keep putting it out and, you know, and, and believe. There's a reason you're doing it or you wouldn't be doing it. Yeah. It's a great point. You have to do it. It's from, it's from in here and it's from out there. At least that's what I believe. It's a godly thing. Oh, yeah. It is. To receive and to put forth. Mm. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, you know, to me, that's a godly effort. Sure. That's worthy of praise in and of itself. Receiving inspiration, transforming it into something someone can listen to. Mm-hmm. To me, that I mean, what could be more meaningful or valuable than that? You know, what can you do with your life? That's you know, you just shouldn't have to get beat up and abused for it. <laughs> you should, you should yeah. be lauded for it. You should be, you know, but that's what it is. It kind of makes. It's kind of like the, you know, the military, you know, kind of make a man out of you. Go in here and beat yeah. the shit out of you, and yeah. you know, call yeah. you every name in the book and tell you you're yeah. terrible, and now nah, yeah. you're not worth my time. You know, have you know, like you said, be on the phone while they're, yeah. you know, oh. listening to the damn demo, and yeah, it'll grow you up really fast. Yeah. Yeah, the fantasy becomes reality really fast, and then you have to decide if the reality is worth is <laughs> worth putting up with. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and you can't stop it. You know those uh, those things right. that come out of the sky, man. You reach up right. and grab them. You can't. You can't stop yeah. it. It would be that would be unnatural and perverse to yeah 
not to not receive it and give it its chance. Yep. Well, man, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you in our conversation here. Really have. Yeah, and, me uh, too. I, I'm trying to think if there's anything I said I wish I hadn't said. No, I'm good with it all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good with all. It's been, it's been, a, it, I've really, a, um, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad you reached out to me. You know, worth your time. So I am too. I'm, I'm glad you. We're glad to have you on the on the show here, and y'all been watching and listening to picking it out. And we've had Gary Portnoy on this week. We'll see you next time.